Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, and welcome to Speak Up. This is Nadia, and today I'm joining you from the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung and Boonwurrung Boon Wurrung people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. Today we're going to be talking about all things DLD. So today I'm joined by Sean Ziegenfuss um, from the DLD Project. Hi, Sean. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Nadia. It's so good to be with you. Um, so can we start a little bit out by talking about some of the key learnings and reflections from the international DLD research conference that you recently ran on Twitter because um, I was on Twitter that day and I saw that it broke. So <laughs> let's have a chat about that. <laughs> oh, look, uh, the international DLD research conference is something that, I mean, I love organising it. It's an at we've just had our third year of doing it. I mean, it really stemmed from the fact that despite the fact that we had this international consensus on DLD, um, and there was a number of child language type um, conferences around the world, there really wasn't anything specific to DLD. Um, and the other thing that's quite unique is it's a purely virtual online conference. Um, part of our um, values is that we try and minimise our impact on the Earth's resources. And so for us to have a purely virtual conference really fits with um, our way of working. Um, and so our first year, we actually had over a thousand people join us from all around the world um, to talk about DLD. We had you know, more than 70 presentations. This year was a little bit more scaled back. We had three amazing keynotes. Um, we had uh, our very own Australian Patricia Eady, um, who many of you may know from the early language in Victoria studies, as well as many, many other amazing pieces of work that she's done around collaboration with early in the early childhood sector. Um, so we had Tricia come on board, as well as um, the wonderful Dr. Susan Ebbles, who's quite, um, you know, a famous face in the DLD space from Morehouse um, School and College in the UK, and her research on school age interventions was just so applicable um, for everybody who was listening in. And then we kind of capped off the conference by listening to Rosanna Comacito, Dr. Rosanna Comacito, who's um, in Cyprus, and she talked about the implementation science behind um, the work that we're doing in DLD and I guess where we need to go and making those links for people. Um, and of course, with the usual um, conference uh, presentations that goes alongside it, amazing topics from people from all around the world. The other aspect that I really love about our conference is the profits go directly towards funding the annual DLD research grant. Um, so, so far we've given away $25,000 worth of research funding. Um, so I really love the fact that we're able to utilize the profits from this conference to be able to A, raise the uh, um, work that people are doing around the world on developmental language disorder and make sure that it's applicable and accessible for everybody, but also the profits are able to fund something um, like continuing the research that's happening in this space. It's such a nice idea to have from such an early stage this be an international space where everyone is collaborating because we both recently were at um, at IUP over mm. in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And one of the things that was clear there was that there were differences country to country in a lot of things that, in a lot of mm. clinical areas that, that were being represented there. And it's it feels like a really nice opportunity to say, okay, no, from day one, we're all going to be on the same page. We're all going to be ensuring that we're getting in, like similar sorts of research and similar sorts of outcomes for those individuals. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then I think the other thing that um, I didn't mention is that we actually give away um, uh, uh, we give away um, conference registrations to people from majority world countries. And I have to take my um, to my hat off to Dr. Suzanne Hopp, who approached us very early on um, and supported us with getting that in place. So we've had um, more than 30 speech pathologists and clinicians from um, countries who traditionally they wouldn't be able to afford to attend something like a, a research conference and for them to be able to join virtually as long as they have access to the internet and a computer, they're able to engage in the same way that those of us in first world countries um, are enjoying from the comfort of our own offices or homes. Um, so I think that events like this really can change the way in which we engage with people around the world, but also make sure that there's genuine accessibility there. That's amazing. That's so great. So um, we're actually going to be having this episode come out just after DLD Day, I believe, which is the 20th of October. Mm -hmm. um, so about once a year, we do, we tend to have a an episode focusing on DLD. And I was just hoping you could give us a bit of a rundown of some of the changes and updates of things that have happened in the last 12 months. Look, I think there's always amazing intervention research that's happening. I think that that's a really important part of what speech pathologists do. But I think we're really moving away from this concept that um, DLD is an impairment purely and that there's actually um, functional impacts to these people um, that we can come along pro and provide support and, and that speech pathologists are, um, the speech pathology intervention we provide is the evidence base, um, the best evidence based practice for supporting a person with DLD. I also think that the um, aspects that have kind of permeated from other as from other areas of disability are impacting on this concept of nothing about us without us yeah. and we're starting to see more co-design research we're starting to see much more collaboration in this space we've got amazing people like um engage with dld two of um which uh two members are australians which is um dr emily jackson and, and associate professor suze later but we've got this amazing group of people who are really trying to connect researchers with people with DLD and that's really starting to inform the work that we're doing. Um, one of the presentations at IDLDRC was a joint project between the DLD project and EDLD um, with the amazing um, Lottie Gasparini and uh, presenting on some of the work that they're doing around communicating research with people with DLD, no longer seeing people with DLD as the recipients mm. of um, our services, but actually very much embedded in the work that we do around developmental language disorder. Um, so we're starting to see some really exciting work that's including their perspective, but also making sure that if you're working with people who have a communication need, um, that we're actually able to communicate the findings from our research back to the most important people, which is people with DLD. Um, so I think that that's a really big change that we're starting to see in the last sort of 12 months um, is thinking about how do we centre our work around people with DLD in a much more authentic and genuine manner. Yeah, great. And look, just picking up on some of the things that you said there about the um, the background of picking up on some of the disability research. One of the things that I personally struggle with as somebody that works in disability is when we're talking about people with DLD, mm. person first, identity first language and, and where <sighs> that kind of sits as well. Yep. So I'm in the very privileged position that I get to pe I get to chat with people with DLD all the time. Um, <laughs> yep. So I've utilize this topic um, quite frequently in my conversations with people because the challenge with some labels that we use and labels hold 
value. They only describe a cluster of observable characteristics, um, but they enable a person to better understand themselves and for other people to better understand how to best support them. The challenge with some of those labels is they're not very easily utilised as an adjective. And so when it comes to the pure language side of um, terminology, there's been some tricky uh, needs around how do we have a identity first, person first, you know, discussion around DLD. So um, at the DLD project, we've been working with parents and teenagers and then people with DLD for the last few years. And we've used terms like DLD-er, adopted from our wonderful ADHD-er colleagues. um, (laughs) And we kind of pinched that one to try and and play around with it a bit. Um, We've also referred to them being as a DLD person. Um, And so we've we've kind of utilised those in written format and verbal format for a long time. And we started going back to people um, saying, you know, what do you think of this? And actually, a lot of the adults with DLD will say they actually prefer to be called a person with DLD because it sounds better to them. Um, So in this sort of, um, you know, discussion at the moment in the DLD space, I really advise people to ask people, um, you know, what would they prefer because we're still not, we don't have that clarity as a community yet. Um, And I know that a number of other, um, you know, people with conditions uh, whose condition doesn't naturally fall into using an an adjective, uh, as an adjective, I should say, um, are having similar conversations, but simply because of the uh, newness of the label, we Mm -hmm. thought, oh, let's get on the front foot here and let's really think about it. And of course, there's intrinsic issues around using the term disorder. um, And I've been very upfront in my views on this over the last few years in that nobody with developmental language disorder was included in the Catalyze Consortium paper. So it's a really key consideration to go back to these people and say, well, we've been utilising this term now. What do you think? Um, And I think that it's really important that we have consistent terminology, um, but we also need to think about the people that it's there for. Um, So, you know, it's a bit of a watch this space. I'm thinking that we will get there eventually, um, but I need to keep my eyes and ears open and listen to the people um, with DLD. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So before we get into some of the other things that I'd like to talk about, I know that a lot of your research is around DLD in school-aged individuals and um, how that's impacting them at school and how they're impacting that social side of things, but also how they're accessing the curriculum. Can you tell us a little bit about how all that's going and what you've been finding? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, um, so I've got a dual speech pathology and education degree, you know, so I've got I've got both in terms of the way in which I frame my viewpoint. So I think that school is really important. You know, I think that um, there's 12, 13 years where children are in this sort of hot box of learning. Um, and it's really important to make sure that we think about how we can best support them. Um, we've got the findings that have just come from the Senate inquiry around disability, mm. where we're looking at the commentary around segregation. And for me, a part of it, having worked in segregated settings and thinking about the way in which most people with DLD are accessing schooling, it is in their school closest to their home. Um, so really we need to be thinking about, and this is what I guess for me, framing my research around is, how can every child or student with DLD access high quality inclusive education within the school of their family's choosing. So that's kind of my, how does that look? And the way in which we started looking at this was, well, actually, what are some of the challenges that people with DLD face at school? And so we conducted a systematic review, and I won't go into how many thousands of papers (laughs) that we looked at because it's 
brings up some heavy memories. Um, but we ended up with about we ended up with forty four studies that met our inclusion criteria, and they broke down into um, probably unsurprisingly mostly papers around literacy. Um, so people with DLD impacted by, um, you know, in the area of literacy, we ended up with a very small number, just three papers that looked at numeracy skills. And so we can see that across literacy and numeracy, people with DLD struggle. When we drill down on literacy, we can see it consistently in reading and writing and narrative skills when it comes to, you know, even handwriting and, um, you know, thinking about the way that, you know, this all comes together. We can see that as a cohort, people with DLD really struggle at school. But what was really interesting was we kind of thought there might be a bit more of a disordered profile, you know, that with very, you know, significant gaps in knowledge and skills. But what we ended up finding was, first of all, that it was a very heterogeneous population that actually, in some instances, people with DLD or students with DLD actually had academic skills within the average range. So, for example, um, looking at numeric mathematics, so we knew doing two times two, when we take off the language load, they can actually succeed, you know, and do quite well. There were some aspects that we were quite surprised by. But when we actually look at their overall profile as a cohort, they fell with this kind of um, almost like delayed profile. They were kind of performing maybe one or two years below um, their peers. But when, term, when we looked at longitudinally, they actually managed to maintain that gap. So it's not that people with DLD can't learn. They're very yeah. capable of learning. Um, but what we need to then unpack is what are the supports that they need. Um, so that kind of led me into the second phase of my research, which was saying, okay, parents, teachers, speech pathologists, you guys are really critical in the education process. What do you think are the areas of need for people with DLD? But then not just what are the problems? What are the, some potential solutions for that? And so what we ended up doing was identifying that pretty consistently with um, what we found in our systematic review, that language and literacy were the areas that kids with DLD struggle with the most at school. Um, when it came to then the potential supports, we found that there were lots of different supports, particularly around providing visual supports and additional time. Um, they were the two themes that sort of came out really strongly in the types of supports. The parents, teachers and speech pathologists didn't necessarily agree on what all the types <laughs> of problems um, that face students with DLD were. But when it came to identifying the supports, they actually were far more consistent in their perspectives, which is really, really nice to see. And I know we're going to touch on um, uh, emotional well-being later, but one of the areas that was kind of a surprise for me was that that emotional well-being, um, you know, and supports were really quite low priorities in schools for the adults working with students with DLD. So that was an interesting sort of side finding, really. What that has led us to in then, of course, is that we can't just ask the adults. So we've actually just finished, literally last week, interviewing um, teenagers with developmental language disorder, and they tell a very different story. Um, you know, they um, they find school really, really hard, yeah. really hard. Um, it's quite a scary, overwhelming, challenging place for them. And in fact, when we asked them on the supports, and I haven't finished analysing the data yet, but when we started looking at the same supports, they had different needs than what parents probably thought would be really helpful. Interestingly, um, adults said, you know, additional supports, additional time is really helpful support. Um, and the students kind of said, 
yeah, but not really, because it's never really enough time to make any difference. So it was quite an interesting qualitative finding was the things that we think are really important may not necessarily align with what the students with DLD, which means that we really need to um, listen to them. And I, I'm going to draw on um, my wonderful colleague, Hayley Tancredi's research. Her research is phenomenal for those people who haven't um, listened, uh, haven't read it yet. Um, it's really around listening to student voice and very much centres why we need to be listening to um, students with developmental language disorder. So I encourage you to check out um, particularly some of her resources around ensuring that we collaborate genuinely with um, students with, with DLD. And all of this is kind of coming together really to help inform a guide to support schools with supporting students with DLD. So that's kind of the cherry on top of the cake. That's the, the post-PhD dream, but <laughs> kind of pulling it all together to say, hey, if you're in this setting, school setting, working with these one in 14 children with developmental language disorder, you should feel confident and empowered to be able to support them that most teachers and parents and speech pathologists would say that, that we're not there yet. Um, so I'm hoping that my PhD research will help people become more confident in supporting, you know, this one in 14 um, young people with DLD in every classroom all around the country. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the things that is really interesting that a lot of a lot of what we're doing generally at the moment is trying to figure out if there are additional things that we're talking about when we're talking about one particular label yeah. or if we're talking about things that kind of need to be teased out a little bit. And um, one of the things that I've been finding really interesting about reading up on DLD things is the things that are co-occurring with mm. DLD diagnoses. Um, and I was reading a little bit about ADHD in particular being one mm -hmm. of the ones that is coming up quite a bit. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that are that we're learning around around what co-occurs with DLD? Yeah, look, it probably goes back to a little bit of a history lesson because one of the previous terms we used was specific language impairment and a part of that was exclusionary criteria. So yeah. we used to rule everything out and I always, you know, argued that there was nothing specific about specific language impairment because they often yeah. had, you know, the pure language impairment was an exception, not the rule. And so that's why, you know, it was really important to A, move away from an exclusionary diagnosis, which I know a number of systems in Australia really struggle with, yeah. um, but you do not need to exclude everything in order to diagnose developmental language disorder. However, there's two um, pathways that occur. When we, when we know that a person presents with difficulties learning language, if there's a known cause for that, for example, autism or an intellectual disability, then we would call that a language disorder. So we don't have autism and DLD co-occurring. And I know that can be really confusing um, for people, but if there's a, a neurodevelopmental condition or an acquired communication condition, that means that a person is gonna be impacted in the domain of language, then we would call that a language disorder associated with that biomedical condition. So I think that's a really important first distinction. But then there's neurodevelopmental conditions that don't necessarily cause difficulties with communication. So I know lots of um, friends, family, colleagues who have ADHD, um, but they don't have language difficulties. But we do know that they can co-occur with each other. Um, so there are a number of conditions such as specific learning disorders, um, such as dyslexia, dyscalculia, um, dysgraphia. We can have what we used to call apraxia um, in terms of gross motor and fine motor movements. Yeah. People can have these neurodevelopmental conditions, but not have difficulties with communication. Mm -hmm. So that's when we say that DLD and these neurodevelopmental conditions are co-occurring um, rather than 
comorbid, for example. So you're right, a lot of people with DLD have ADHD. Um, and in fact, there's been lots of discussions, particularly around um, things like the NDIS and looking at funding schemes as to whether would actually providing medication change the language trajectory of a person when they have both. Um, and we know that people who have DLD, it's a, it's a lifelong difficulty um, that certainly supporting them with their attention is going to be really critical, um, but is not necessarily going to cure their difficulties with learning language. Um, so there's lots of conditions that we might be looking out for. The challenge that we face is that speech pathologists are the primary diagnosticians of developmental language disorder. However, primary language impairments are the exception, not the rule. So how do we as health professionals make sure that our young people or, or maybe adults who are being diagnosed get referred back to a more holistic team that can make sure that we're looking at and viewing them as a whole person? Um, so, you know, I often use the Indian proverb of the blind men um, feeling the elephant. I often imagine as a speech pathologist, I'm somewhere at the head end of the elephant um, and that I can tell you a lot about their communication skills. However, I know that a lot of people with DLD are going to have co-occurring um, difficulties with motor planning, with behaviour, with attention, with learning um, to read. So let's make sure that we refer back to, for example, in childhood, a paediatrician um, where possible, or if we can refer them or recommend that they see, you know, an occupational therapist or a physiotherapist. But similar to um, parents, I find speech pathologists can be a little bit hesitant to make that recommendation unless they feel really concrete on that um, their evidence for making that referral. Um, so that's why, for me, I often say, now that we've made this diagnosis around developmental language disorder, I think it's it would be a great idea if you went back to or connected with a paediatrician who's going to have a much more holistic view of the young person and make sure that we're feeding the DLD label into um, a bigger picture. And often what might happen is a child might present with, say, global developmental delay, but really it ends up being DLD DCD, Developmental Coordination Disorder, and ADHD, but it's not until we've kind of unpicked all of that can we have a really clear view as to who they are as a, as a whole person, rather than just my end of the elephant that, I, that I, <laughs> I'm trained to look at. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think that leads us really nicely into talking a little bit about well-being and mm. mental health and how yeah. that's kind of interplaying as well, because I know that there's some emerging research that you've been doing around mm what that interaction looks like. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we've known for a very, very, very long time that people with DLD are at increased risk of mental health needs. And it's something that I would say in my clinical practice, I tend to treat proactively rather than reactively. Let's build a relationship with a mental health professional when we're at a at a positive, you know, settled point of our lives rather than doing it as a reactive, uh, you know, reaction, because we know that people with DLD are likely to need that support. The challenge that we face is that talking-based therapies are the gold standard for mental health support. Um, so cognitive behavioural therapy is a, a marvellously well-researched um, tool in our arsenal but it relies on the ability to talk and understand, which yeah. puts people with DLD in an automatic disadvantage compared to um, people with neurodevelopmental conditions who may not have oral language difficulties. Mm. So 
what do we do about that? And, and, and is part of the mental health issues that we face because the interventions are not designed for a person with DLD. So it's interesting we started talking about the International DLD Research Conference over the last two years. We've seen a growth in presentations around mental health and, and adjusting communication within those settings. However, we really need to come alongside our psychology colleagues and make sure that they understand that communication is a really key part of their intervention and that they know how to match the intervention with the person's communication abilities. Some psychologists are phenomenal at doing this, but I think as a profession, um, my experience has been a lot of psychologists are still learning how to do that to best tailor it for a person with DLD. So there's a few things that we need to be thinking about. I, I will... Um, take my hat off to Liz Hill and her team um, who are just about to start a co-design research project around looking at mental health and well-being with adolescents who have DLD. Um, so we're going to get some interesting information there. We're also looking to um, Dr. Hannah Hobson um, in the UK, who's starting to do some research on camouflaging and masking in DLD. Often um, we kind of presumed that there's this more boys than girls, um, but really um, we can look to um, Dr. Sam Calder's research in the RAIN study where he looked at the prevalence and his team looked at the prevalence of DLD at 10 years of age and actually found equitable presentation of, of males and females, which is kind of leading me maybe to this hypothesis that potentially girls have more are more likely to be masking and camouflaging it, which is exactly what yeah. we see in other neurodevelopmental conditions. That's not unique to DLD, but it means that there's probably a lot of really tired girls and women out there who are spending their days pretending that they don't have um, developmental language disorder um, and really trying to compensate for that um, in their day-to-day -day life. And got you know, my hat goes off to particularly a lot of the um, amazing um, uh, personalities in the DLD space. I see this ge very genuinely like um, Shelby, Anison, um, and Sophie Franks, who are amazing women with DLD, who are very vulnerable in social media, in the social media world, sharing their experiences. But, you know, it's hard, you know, it's yeah. exhausting to be constantly navigating a world that isn't adjusting its communication for you in the same way that it'd be really exhausting if you had a physical impairment and you couldn't get around because there wasn't an elevator or, or a ramp, you know, so we need to think about the, the impact that that has on people with DLD. Um, so it kind of makes sense to me why they might have difficulties with social, social emotional and well-being. What was more concerning, as I mentioned earlier in my academic research, was when we kind of prioritised areas, really adults prioritise um, emotional well-being a lot lower than learning how to read. Um, for me, that's... Um, doesn't connect with some of the other research that I've been looking at, particularly in the autism space, where social emotional well-being and academic skills were seen um, or quite equitably as important. Um, so I think that there's some narrative shift that we need to, ex you know, explore in this space about how can we make sure that we're thinking about well-being and how can we make sure those interventions are adjusted and accessible. A bit yeah. of a rant. Sorry, Nadia. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I was reflecting a little bit on the idea that um, I know that some conversations I've had with with educational professionals in the past have kind of come at that from maybe a top-down approach rather than a bottom-up, mm -hmm. and it sounds yeah. like we kind of need to do both rather than saying yeah. teaching you how to read will improve your well-being. It's like, well, maybe if we do both at both. the same time, we might get some benefits to, to both of them. And it's great that we have the – 
I guess the um, the roadmap the the autism research has been laying out a little mm -hmm. bit to be able to apply to other things and pick mm -hmm. up on the things that have been learned there about masking, for example, and, and apply it more generally. And it gives us the opportunity to be, to be more proactive about all of those things and hopefully put supports in place sooner, right? And I absolutely, and I think that we're aware. It's not that we don't yeah. know. I think that the genuine challenge that we face as clinicians is we're not quite sure what do. Um, and I think that I was very well trained in my degree to work with little people, um, yeah. you know, working zero to five-year-old space, even transitioning into the sort of that early years of schooling. But I find a lot of people when it comes to developing functional language goals that fit within a person's needs across their lifetime, I think that there's still a little bit of work that we need to do, particularly in our, our speech pathology student training to make sure that we're really preparing our speech pathology professionals to be ready for lifelong neurodevelopmental conditions, because this isn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, we've got great awareness that's improved since 2017. Those kids diagnosed in 2017 at five might already be 10 or at 10 might already be 15. Um, and so we can't just keep focusing on little kids, you know, and thinking about, um, you know, the work that we do in that space and making sure that our profession is upskilled in what does a functional communication goal look like for a 17 year old boy who wants to become a mechanic or a 18 year old girl who's transitioning into her first year of university with DLD, you know, what does that look like? And I still think that there's some work um, that we need to do in preparing our students to do that, to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thinking about some of the things that you were saying there about proactive support. So mm. what are some things that speech pathologists who are working with individuals with DLD, what can they look out for? What can they do to proactively support that person's well-being? Mm. I think First and foremost, and it sounds simple, but really getting to know the person and their need, it's so central to our evidence-based practices, including client values. But when somebody has a communication difficulty, like developmental language disorder, it can take an, a lot longer than we'd expect it to, to unpack what they truly value. Um, I often set up my sessions, initial appointments with families and say, you know, I'm very family-centered in my approach and person-centered in the way I work. I can give you ideas and options, but ultimately I'm not you and I'm not their, I'm not their father. How can you make an informed decision? So I think that that's, that's part of it is making sure that we take the time, but also give um, our clients and their families genuine options and opportunities and making sure that we're thinking about it with the information they've provided in mind. Um, and also what you were saying before about masking, keeping that yeah. in consideration as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It can be a really fatiguing journey for a person with DLD day in and day out to navigate the communication needs of their environment. Mm -hmm. And so I give you an amazing example of a, of a woman that I, I know who's got developmental language disorder and dyslexia. And she once described to me that she thought it was normal to get up at 4am to start her day because she knew it would take her from 4am to 10pm to do her usual work and to do the child rearing that she needs wow. to do because it takes her longer to process everything that she does. And so it's just for me, her explaining to me her everyday experience meant me go, no wonder you're, you know, you must be exhausted. And she said, yeah, I am exhausted. I said, 
I actually don't think you need me. I think you need to chat to a, a psychologist or a counsellor about your experiences and, and you know, really start to unpack some of this. And we did that in conjunction, you know, um, as, as joint service delivery. But it was really important to think about the fact that I could have jumped in and worked on a language goal that helped her with her day-to-day -day work or, or child rearing or whatever it was that was her priority. But really, she needed to unpack how fatiguing it is for her as an adult with DLD, with work and life responsibilities um, before she could really come to the party. Um, so I think that my, my next piece of advice would be kind of assume that a person with DLD is going to need those social, emotional well-being and support at some point. Um, that's not to say that, you know, we need to come in with the um, every day going every, or every session you know, waiting for the cracks to form um, or expecting cracks to form, but being open to that idea that they're going to need supports. So if you don't know who your mental health services are in your region or area, you don't have a relationship with a psychologist, not as only that going to be useful information for your clients with DLD, it's probably really good useful information for everybody that you work with. Um, yeah. So I'd really challenge clinicians who are listening in to think about, well, who are the mental health services that I can refer to or do refer to? Does everybody in my practice know that or my organisation know that? Um, and what is the referral process and, and how long might it take? Because is it better to build those preventative strategies? So, you know, when it comes to arguing for things like the NDIS where you need, you know, health professionals involved, I pretty much can't do my job without some sort of mental health support at some point. So, you know, building a proactive relationship, as I said earlier, rather than the reactive relationship is going to be really, really key to making sure that I'm thinking lifelong about this person with DLD. Brilliant. Thank you. I've probably opened a can of worms mentioning NDIS. So it's probably worth updating that. just very quickly <laughs> that um, as many people probably understand with the NDIS, there's a lot of... Um, you know, re-evaluation that's taking place at the moment. And I want people to be really clear that organisations like Speech Pathology Australia and the DLD project have um, worked behind the scenes for quite a number of years yeah. um, to make sure that the NDIS is aware of the needs of people with DLD and the concerns that clinicians have around equitable access. Um, there's really concerning data about the number of people with DLD accessing the NDIS compared to the percentage of people. And that's a factor that the NDIS and, and um, you know, Senator Bill Shorten's, you know, their office is aware of um, that we probably can't fund everybody with DLD because there are so many people. So how do we decide who when, where, and why. So we understand that there are challenges associated with that. Um, and we're still communicating um, with Bill's office in the NDIS, um, or NDIA, I should say. However, there's not a quick fix for this. And I, I beg forgiveness that it's taken as long as it has. Um, but people will understand, I think policy and, and practice changes take a long time, particularly in the face of reviews and re-evaluation. So please um, be optimistic um, that one day we will see equitable access but what that looks like um, may not always be through the NDIS but it might be through other sources of, of funding as well so it's something that we're very acutely aware of and very much working on behind the scenes and as soon as we have clear answers I'm sure both SPAR and, and the DLD project will be keen to communicate them with our um, respective audiences so yeah it's a bit of a yeah aware that we're working on it and um, thank you so much for your patience in that space. <laughs>
yeah, it's a challenging thing. And like you said, it is something that we're moving and it is moving. It is moving yeah. in the right direction. It's just that it takes time. takes time, which is challenging. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, no, I think that they were the main points that I'd love for, um, you know, the podcast listeners to take away. And yeah. please, if they um, can do anything, it's know that, people with DLD exist in a world where most people don't know about them. Um, and if we can help by raising awareness of DLD, um, that's actually a huge, um, a huge thing to do and, and something that people with DLD so, so appreciate. So thank you for all of the work that um, the amazing clinicians do in terms of diagnosing DLD and supporting people with DLD because we really can't do it without you. Brilliant. Well, that seems like a lovely place to leave it on. Thanks so much for your time today, Sean. No worries, Nadia. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for everyone who's listening today and tune in next time for our next conversation. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.